morning. I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 13, 1 through 23. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name to say to them, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being will be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Please join me in prayer. God, we come to you today with a grateful heart, a heart that is surrounded in a world of evil, God, but we know you are good. We know that you are surrounding us with your love and peace, and that you're in our hearts, and you're leading us the right way, God. We pray that we have open eyes and ears and hearts to listen to what you have to say, God, to understand the good of who you are, even when we don't deserve it. You continue to pour out praise and blessings and grace upon us, Lord, that we never deserve, God. But I pray that we keep our eyes and ears open to you, even when these times come, God, that we're willing to listen and do as you ask, God. I pray that you bring peace to the people who need peace today, God. I pray for the individuals that are hurting, God, that need to feel your love more than ever. I pray that we as your people, God, can be that light and show those people 
how good you are. God, again, I thank you for how good you are to us, Lord. And I pray that we are open and we're ready to hear your message today, God. We love you so much. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. If you haven't already found Mark 13, I'll find Mark 13. I want to show you a couple things. Several years ago, Shane and I had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. Anybody been to Washington, D.C.? So you've probably been here, the National Mall. You've seen that? That's, I mean, that's a pretty amazing picture. I mean, you look in one end to the other, you're looking toward the, the monument there, and it's, it's an amazing thing if you haven't seen it. My favorite part of Washington, D.C. is the next picture, and that is the, anybody? That's the Jefferson, but specifically at night. There's something about the Jefferson that just strikes me as one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, especially at night. Now, some of you probably have been to Washington, D.C. around the time of the cherry blossoms and things like that, and I understand that's really beautiful as well, but I, I think of the Jefferson Monument at night as being one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen. The mall or the, the, the Jefferson Monument as well is a sign of beauty. It's a, it's a sign of power. It, it reminds us of victory as Americans. And much like the National Mall, the temple complex that Caitlin just read about in Mark chapter 13, the temple complex in the ancient Near East was expanded by Herod the Great. I want you to hear these numbers. 300 meters wide, mathematicians here, 300 meters wide, 500 meters long. This is the temple complex. It took up 35 acres. This was a big deal. And so the Jewish historian named Josephus writes these words. Listen, about the, the, the temple in the ancient Near East. He says, now the outward face of the temple and its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a very fiery splendor. It made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But according to strangers, this temple, when they were at a distance, these strangers saw a, a mountain covered with snow. Some of the stones were 67 feet long. They were dazzling white. In other words, Josephus, the historian, would say the temple was a big deal. 35, 35 acres. That's, that's a pretty good size temple. Everyone was awed by this great structure to include, as we just read about, in Mark chapter 13, they were awed by this structure, even the disciples of Jesus. But I want to show you something going all the way back to the prophet Ezekiel. A couple of verses here. In Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, verses 18 and 19, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings, and they mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. Now, if you're not familiar with Ezekiel, this is a, shall we say, it's a little bit of strange for us in the West. We, we, we look at Ezekiel and we think, man, that is a weird guy. But what he's describing for us here is the temple complex. What he's describing for us, even back in Ezekiel, even in the Old Testament, is something that happens all because of God. And this, this cherubim, this these angels that he speaks of in chapter 10, and as he talks about the east side, he's talking about the temple. He goes on in chapter 11, verses 22 and 23 to say this, 
So these angels, then the cherubim, lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, why do I tell you that? Because that, sound, that ought to sound really familiar to you if you paid attention to what Caitlin read for us, or if you're aware of Mark chapter 13. We've been looking the last several months through the Gospel of Mark, and we specifically have gotten to this place of confrontation between Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, God in the flesh, versus mankind in the ancient Near East. Specifically, not just mankind, but religious people in the ancient Near East. This confrontation happens in chapters 11 and 12 and chapter 13, in which we were at today. And so when Jesus begins to leave, you know where he goes? He goes from the east part of the city. And he's on the east side of the city, on the Mount of Olives, as he says what he says. Ezekiel, the old prophet, would say, the glory of God has left the temple. Now think about that for just a second. The glory of God has left the temple. Why is that so significant? When Jesus leaves the temple, and he's been talking about judgment toward the religious people, he's been talking about judgment toward the Jews who don't necessarily believe. They're great about tradition. They go through all the motions. If they were here among us, they would probably be somewhere in church today. They probably would have put something in the offering plate. They were great about tradition, church, but they were far from God. And so the prophet Ezekiel, even going so far back to Ezekiel, would say, the glory of God has left the temple. And when Jesus leaves Jerusalem, which symbolizes the kingdom of God, when Jesus leaves the temple, when Jesus leaves Jerusalem, and he heads out east, and he stands on the Mount of Olives, and he looks over Jerusalem, and he prophesies again. It's a picture for us who have the ability to look back 2,000 years, and we can see that God, through Jesus Christ, in a way would say, the glory of God has left the temple. Because just in a couple of weeks, we will celebrate, as Mark said, we will celebrate Resurrection Day. And the reason that Jesus has to go to the cross, the reason that the glory of God leaves the temple is because of a couple of things. Unbelief, they're believing in tradition more than they're believing in God, more than they're believing in the one who shows them who God is, Jesus Christ. They're so caught up in their stuff that they miss Jesus. Even the disciples, even the closest followers of Jesus, they, they don't get it. So I want you to reflect on the question of why. Judgment, unbelief. Worship of other things. We talked in our Bible study this morning, this idea of idolatry. This is not just a one-time thing. Idolatry occurs over and over and over again. We're, we're quick as New Testament believers to look back at the Old Testament and say, they were guilty of idolatry. You see right there? They were, they were guilty of idolatry. But so often we forget, we can look in the mirror and we can say, hey, there are things in my life, there are things in your life that have become more important than God. And so if you're honest with yourself, if we're honest with each other, especially as we gather around this table here before God and one another, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit we're just as idolatrous as those in the Old Testament. You've all heard it before. If it feels like you're far from God, it's time to be honest with yourself. God hasn't moved. I mean, you have. As I mentioned in chapters 11 through 13, Mark has recorded this struggle, this confrontation between Jesus 
and those especially surrounding the temple, the religious people, you could say that they were going through the motions. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 comes to mind. And let me read it for you just real quick for those of you who don't know it. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it goes on to talk about this idea of just saying the words, of just, as Mike said, we're worshiping from here instead of from here. We're just going through the motions. And so listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13. He's looking over, he's looking over this temple complex, 35 acres. And his disciples, like everybody else, is in awe of this grand structure. And notice what he says. Look, teacher, they say, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Maybe you find yourself at the one end of the National Mall, or maybe you're standing at the Jefferson Memorial or your favorite memorial. Maybe it's a Vietnam veteran memorial. There's all kinds of memorials in, in D.C. And I don't know about you, but we, we didn't even find three or four days was enough to cover everything that we wanted to see in Washington, D.C. But the point I want to make this morning is all of these things, all of these things that remind us of how God has been gracious to us, how our identity is America. We can get so caught up in that that we miss that we miss. Those are just things. Those are just things that perhaps we put our identity too much in that rather than the one God who offers us all the things that he wants to, to give us. It's the same thing here in Mark chapter 13. Look, look teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And, and Jesus is not arguing that they're not wonderful stones or wonderful buildings, but he says, do you see these great things? There will not be left here stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Can you imagine? Can you imagine for a Jew? I mean, think about it for a second. We got offended as Americans on 9-11 when people were flying into our buildings because it was destroying the very fabric of who we were as Americans, whether it was Philadelphia or whether it was Washington, D.C. You can imagine, I think, how these Jews would have thought, how could this be, right? These are 67-foot-long stones. Everything was supposed to point to God. And now Jesus says everything is going to be thrown down. And so, as he often does, they're aghast at what Jesus says. And so he says uh, he sat on the east side of the city on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, and listen to what this dialogue occurs. Peter and James, John and Andrew, these four that are closest to Jesus, ask him privately, tell us about these things. Tell us, tell us what they will be and what the sign will be. If you, haven't, if you haven't already heard from Caitlin or if you haven't been reading with us, I think Jesus' summary, Jesus would say, prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Well, what do I mean? Prepare yourself. Be watchful, he would say. Be, be watchful. Be, be looking. Be, be mindful that Jesus is coming back one day. I mean, it's not just about God in the flesh hanging on the cross. It's not just about Jesus rising from the dead. But it's also about Jesus coming back for us one day. So what are we doing to prepare ourselves? What are we doing to prepare ourselves? In other words, how are you being intentional about your spiritual journey? I recognize this question or these questions might make you a little bit uncomfortable because all too often I think we, we would like to think that, hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm pretty intentional about my spiritual. I'm not at the lake today. Okay. But I, I think intentionality goes much deeper than that. When Jesus tells Peter, James, Andrew, John, 
to be intentional, be be prepared to prepare yourself. Notice what it says in verse 5. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Do you think that's still a possibility today? There, There are a lot of people that are being led astray. The NIV translates it, watch out. It could be people, it might be things, everything that attempts to take you away from being the person that God wants you to be. They're very real in our life, very real in our life. So the imperative, the, the command is to watch out, be on your guard, don't let it happen. And in case you missed it in verse 5, he says it again in verse 23, be on your guard. Can I offer to you something this morning, and if you don't get anything else this morning, please, 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 wake up and get this. Complacency is Satan's best friend. Complacency and apathy is a ploy from Satan, and complacency is what causes us to go back to the dead men, to the dead women that we once were. So what are you doing? What are you doing to prepare yourself? You understand there's only so much that a church can do for you. I mean, we can offer a sacred space. What I mean by sacred space is not because of who we are, but because of who God is. When we gather in this place, we believe that Jesus is here among us, that God is here among us, that the Holy Spirit is among us. That's what makes it a sacred space. We can offer you those sacred spaces, a place where you can come around the communion table with fellow believers. We can provide ways in which you can learn and study. If you haven't already plugged into a Bible study, let me encourage you to do so. But I hope you'll understand this metaphor. We can set the table, but if you never drag your chair up around the table and never eat, you're going to starve. If you depend on someone else more than the Holy Spirit, you will be disappointed. Let me say that again. If you depend on someone else other than the Holy Spirit, you will be disappointed. And when we do offer these opportunities, rest assured there will be chances to give you an excuse. I mean, I can think of, I can think of many things I've heard. The last thing Satan wants you to do when you watch out or be on guard or to be ready, the last thing Satan wants you to do is, is come around this table, come around fellow believers and, and be in relationship, be in community. We've talked about community over and over and over this past year. And I really believe that there's something about coming together and and pointing toward Jesus Christ. You reminding me of how God is faithful and me reminding you of how God is faithful. And I was thinking this past week as I spoke at the memorial service for my father-in-law. And this is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, this is where my wife is is devastated because she's lost her father or my my kids are, are... are devastated because they've lost their grandfather. And so it, it, it slaps you in the face and you have to really understand, do you really believe what you say you believe or are you just going through the motions? You, you've all experienced tragedy in some way. You've all experienced loss. We were sitting in the medical ICU last Friday afternoon not knowing what was going to go on with Jackie. And if you've ever been, Lubbock has a couple of big hospitals. One of the big hospitals is Methodist and they have several different intensive care units, and this particular one was a medical ICU. It had 34 beds, and people are coming and going, and this particular day, I think they lost six people, so when I say going, I mean going. There's this 25-year-old young lady that they bring in who is there because of anaphylactic shock, and they don't know what she's allergic to. Long story short, they lose this 25-year-old young lady who we find out later has a three-month-old baby. And the floor is just full of 
family member and they're coming and they're going and they're coming and they're going and they're wailing and they're weeping and they're wailing and they're weeping. And I turned to my sister-in-law and I said, you know what, this is, this is really where the rubber meets the road. Do you really believe what you say you believe? Do you really believe that death is, for us as believers, a transition and not the end? And what do you do if you're a family member, if you're a young husband of this 25-year-old young lady who has just lost her life? Nothing that she did. It was just, I don't know if she was bit by a bee. I don't know if she ate something. It was something that she was allergic to, and ultimately it took her life. And so all these questions that the world throws at us of why do Bad things happen to good people. You've all heard it before. Maybe you've even asked it yourself. It's another opportunity to reflect on, do you really believe in what you espouse on Sunday or on Wednesday or during these safe and sacred spaces? Or is it just lip service? Or is it just going through the motions? A tragedy is tragedy. I mean, we ought to recognize there's something, there's something that causes us to cry out to God. I, I remember just as you do in the Gospels, where, where Jesus shows up around the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps with those around him because he, he recognizes that there's something, there's limitations to our flesh. I won't see my father-in-law. My kids won't see their granddad. My wife won't see her father. That is until we get to the presence of God. And yet we as believers have to deal with grief much differently than the rest of the world. Jesus is getting them to understand that there's going to be suffering. So what are you doing to prepare yourself? What are you doing to increase that faith? What are you doing to grow? Elders, let me speak to you for just a second. Elders, if you're an elder here at Hillcrest Christian Church, you have a responsibility to yourself. You also have been tasked with the responsibility to prepare the church, to prepare Hillcrest Christian Church to stand before God one day. So what are you doing? What are you being intentional about so that you can stand before God and say, here they are, and here's how I led. As imperfect as it was, by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, here they are. And if you're not being intentional about, guess what? Apathy's going to set in. Complacency's going to set in. If you're not an elder, are you praying for your leaders? Are you intentional about praying for your leaders? You should be, because they struggle with complacency and they struggle with apathy just like you and I do. All too often, we're quick to point the finger. We're quick to accuse rather than pray. Push that aside. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, what are you doing to be ready? What are you doing to prepare your family, your kids, your grandkids for meeting Jesus? And if you're not intentional, guess what? So you have a responsibility, not just an individual responsibility. You have a responsibility to stand for them. They can't make their own decisions. They're their priorities are all out of whack. And until they reach a certain age, you have to make decisions for them. And so are you intentional about those decisions? Are, are, they, are they being nurtured spiritually, not just fed at a table, not just entertained? Are they being fed spiritually? Are, are you doing something about their soul? You have an obligation to provide a meal for them. You have an obligation to clothe them. But I'm talking about a greater expectation, a greater obligation of increasing their faith. Men, are you intentional about leading your wife and your children as the ministers that you're called to be? If not, someone or something else will. When Jesus says, be ready, when he says, be watchful, when he talks about the, and, and this 
particular text, if you haven't already figured it out by now, he's talking about the temple being destroyed in AD 70, but it's not just that. He's also talking about some eschatological terms. He's also talking about the end time. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and. Of course, we, we recognize by history that it does exactly what Jesus said it would do. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. But we're also mindful of the fact that Jesus is coming back, and he talks a lot about this judgment, lack of belief, and the glory of God leaving the temple. Think about that for a second. What does Paul say that we are as believers? We're the very temple of the Holy Spirit, Bonnie. And God forgive us if the temple, God remind us of our responsibility. Because if the, if the glory of God ever leaves the temple, what happens? We find ourselves just like the Israelites. We find ourselves just like Adam and Eve as they leave the garden and there's this flaming sword passed back and forth and you can no longer go in the presence of God. You may think I'm making a big deal about this. I am making a big deal because this is life and death. So what do you do with these opportunities? What, what do you do with these opportunities to, to be encouraged, to be challenged in your faith, to watch out, to be ready? I, I've mentioned to you just in passing a few minutes ago all the excuses that I've heard before. You've, you may have heard the excuses before. If you decide a Bible study is right for you, guess what? You may be a little more tired on a Saturday night instead of getting here on Sunday morning on time. If you decide you're going to plant your roots, become a follower of Jesus Christ, guess what? Satan's going to cause some friction between husband and wife and parents and kids. And you've all experienced that before, right? Don't, don't, don't write that off as coincidence. Their spiritual warfare is alive, 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 and well. You might convince yourself you're just too busy to become involved in a small group like everyone else isn't busy. And if you're not intentional about the time for prayer and reflection on what God has done, some of this that we do doesn't mean much. Jesus, as I mentioned to you, talks about eschatology. It's a big 50-cent word the church uses for the last times. What's the point of what Jesus says? He says there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars. When some people come and say, I'm the Christ, look, there he is. He says, don't believe all that. There's all kinds of things. I remember a lady coming to me one time and saying, Are you, do you believe in prophecy? Of course I believe in prophecy. But we, we have all kinds of prophecy in the Scripture. No, do you really believe in prophecy what she meant by going to the local barnes and noble going to your favorite half price bookstore or whatever and going through this last days books have you ever done that before there's so much garbage out there there's so much garbage out there there was a man uh, named miller and his followers became known as the millerites and the reason i mention him is because he had done the math and he believed that jesus christ was coming back in 1844 well, obviously, Jesus didn't come back in 1844, right? Charles Taze Russell, some of you know that, that name. He's a leader of Jehovah Witnesses. He said 1914. 1914 didn't happen, so he says 1940s. 1940s didn't happen, so they keep changing it. Harold Camping, some of you know the name Harold Camping. In 2011, Harold Camping out in California said that he had done the math and Jesus was obviously coming back on a particular day at a particular time. Guess what? Harold Camping was wrong. This is, there's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, when they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Listen to what Jesus says. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times. Now, some of you need to go home and get that four blood moon book you've got, you've been reading on your nightstand and throw it in the trash. Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's he saying? Don't worry about the end. The end will take care of itself. What are you supposed to do? Prepare yourself. Be ready. Be watchful. Be, be intentional. That's our obligation. As I close this morning, I want to point to you to verse 13, just a little phrase at the end of verse 13, if you can find it for me. Jesus talks about this suffering. Now, that's not a common theme in our world today, in our society today. Most of us, unless we're masochists, we don't like suffering. We don't like struggle. We don't like pain. And we all realize that there's suffering and struggle and pain. But Jesus takes it a step further, and he doesn't just say there's going to be suffering and struggle and pain. He says, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will experience suffering. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Believer, follower of Jesus Christ, have been revealed to you. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. That sinner, that Savior is Jesus Christ. You've been enlightened. That, that's revelation. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Notice, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're going to experience suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that your, your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, or for this reason, don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward. You know what? My experience has been every time we began to experience a little bit of pain, every time we go through a little bit of suffering, then Satan rears his ugly head and says, God doesn't care about you. But if you remember these verses right here, you'll recognize that there's going to be suffering. I know this is not popular because there's, there's churches today with preachers that will speak about health and wealth and health and wealth, and God doesn't want you sick, and God doesn't want you poor. Health and wealth and health and wealth. And the Bible says, no, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be struggle. You're going to, this is a hard road, is it not? Yes, it's, it's a hard road. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I believe it is, Paul tells Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is that, is that black and white? That's, that's pretty clear. They will be persecuted. We don't, we don't experience that because we live in the West, and we may think of persecution as being over there somewhere. There's going to come a point in time where you're going to have to decide which side you're on. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let me close by saying this. Are you ready? This is not a very encouraging message, is it? But it's truth. Jesus says, be ready. Be watchful. What are you doing intentionally? What are you doing to equip yourself with the things you need so that when you are persecuted, so when you go through these trials, when you go through this suffering, when you go through these struggles, what are you doing to prepare yourself that you will not turn back Verse 13, the end of verse 13 says, but the one who endures to the end, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end. I wonder how many of us, though, will have to see family member or friend or somebody that we've even gathered around the communion table with from time to time fall by the wayside. I hope that's not any one of us here. Last but not least, let me ask you this. Consider this. 
Jesus is very clear in Mark chapter 13. He's clear in other parts of the text of, of Scripture. But there's going to come these false prophets. There's going to come these people that tell you what you want to hear. Paul tells Timothy there's going to come a point in time where people just want their ears, ears tickled. They just want to confirm whatever it is they're doing. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies. God would go so far as to say, be holy, be set apart, be different than the rest of the world. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. So what will we do with what we've been given? What will we do with what we've been given? How will we move it from here, intellectually, to here? Let's pray. Father, for your word, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful, Father, for um, truth. I'm grateful, Father, that you don't tell us everything we want to know, but you tell us everything we need to know. And God, when we are caught up in, in doing math, when we're caught up in, in thinking that we know better than you, God, forgive us. Help us to be equipped. Help us to understand our responsibility to become disciples before we make disciples. To become a follower before we make followers. And help us, God, to understand that we have, we have great gifts before us. Uh, your word, uh, those who encourage us as iron sharpens iron relationships and community and this this great uh, group of believers who has a huge impact in the world. God, help us to understand the gifts that we've been given, but help us never to take those gifts for granted. Help us always to understand responsibility. And God, when we do suffer, when we do uh, face persecution, when we do face struggle, no matter how that uh, looks, how it is is portrayed, God, I just pray that we would be as the writer of James says to consider it pure joy uh, because that develops character and character hope and we understand that we're becoming more like Jesus Christ, the one who suffered for us all. If there's someone here today that's never experienced a relationship with Jesus, never experienced a relationship with Jesus, I pray today is the day. Perhaps some of us need to move from knowing about God, knowing about Jesus, to knowing God knowing Jesus. God, whatever it is, maybe we just need prayer. Whatever it is, would you, would you hear our hearts? Would you do a miracle in each of us today? And would you hold us accountable? In Christ's name I pray. Amen.